Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 5. This episode I titled Transparencies because we were going through a whole bunch of different witness statements, trying to put a timeline together and trying to find one anchor that tied them all together. We found that anchor in a man named Red Rock. Joined today in the studio by Mr. Mike Bussing. Hey. And Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, hey. Zach's got some thoughts. You guys got some thoughts. So let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get into the listener questions, Zach, your thoughts on transparencies. Well, as far as being transparent in myself, a little confusing, to be honest. (laughs) And also to be transparent, before we came in here, I asked Zach if he was confused. And I was. Yeah, with the the episode. And so so what happened was the episode came out. Well, let let me back up. Here I am doing my research, going through all these statements. Literally not using actual transparencies, but through a computer and a whiteboard, lining things up, and I have this epiphany about how all this Red Rock stuff ties in. I then sit down and start writing the script for the episode, and myself being uh, a podcast speaker and also a former teacher, come up with what I find to be the best way to relay all this information so that it can be absorbed by all of you and everyone will understand it. I wrote the episode. I recorded the episode, patted myself on the back for a job well done, thinking this is the most clear and concise anyone could possibly be in trying to put all of these statements together. The episode dropped. I went onto social media to check out all of the praise that I would be receiving from all of you listeners, only to find a post with over 100 comments of people saying that they were confused. So let me first apologize that apparently. My delivery was not what I thought it was. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this. There's a lot of names. There's a lot. I mean, it was kind of hard for me to be able to tie everything together. When you really sit down, and we kind of talked about it this morning, I see where you're coming from, and I and I understand your anchor point, but there is just so many names and and things in there going on. I feel like when I went back and listened, I t- to me, it seemed like the confusing part came in when we brought in Katie and Youngster statement. 
Yeah, because they're a little bit all over the place. Well, especially Youngster. And that was because as, as I'm listening back to it, I will say that I think the way I recorded it, I think I, I was talking too fast. That probably didn't help. I probably could have built in more, you know, spacing for people to absorb what I was saying. Uh, but it was like I could, I was listening thinking that, you know, I don't know why everybody's having this trouble. I can track this just fine. And then when we got, when we added in KD's statement, things get a little wonky because it doesn't quite line up, but there's parts there. And then when I got to Red Rocks, or not, excuse me, Youngster's statement, I think his was completely all over the place. And it just, it was very confusing. And that's where it fell apart for me. And I knew what was going on. So I will say the the aspects I took out of it that I have questions about are when we get in early into like June's statement. Okay. And and she starts talking about hearing the noises. And I and I believe we have some listener questions. We'll get into it a little bit. But hearing the noises and, and looking at her peephole. And I am curious as to where that actually falls in the timeline. Because because it could fall after the murder. Or right. after everything has taken place. Or it could be before. Or it could be before. And I think that puts a big question mark in my head as far as that. Yeah. And you're, you're not alone with that. A lot of people thought the same thing. Um, and, and, and we'll get specifically into it with these questions that we have come from listeners about it. But for me, there was two, I had two goals with this episode. The first goal was to determine if indeed the interaction with Red Rock actually occurred. And I feel like we did, I feel like everybody's in a pretty much agreement it did at this point. Everybody, you have Jennifer obviously saying that it did. You have June Sage saying she saw Jennifer with these, these two guys that approached, they had a conversation, and those guys left. So that fits with it. And then even um, Youngster saw through the window, sees these two guys. And then we talked to Red Rock and Housen, and they both confirm. And, and, and they confirm it in the exact same. And that, this is why, like, there's no question in my mind. They didn't say, yeah, I saw her, but then there's something, you know, different about it. They, they had the exact same scenario that they, they portrayed in their statements. So first thing is, did the interaction with Red Rock actually happen? Yes, it did. And, and for, again, transparency's sake, I'll see how many times I can use that this episode. You know, this is a weird process, but it's like the, the, what, what I'm trying to do, and I think you guys have caught on to it, is I'm trying to look at her statement piece by piece by piece and say, what is true and what is false? And so Red Rock was a big, important one because it carries through all the way to her final confession. And so it's, did that part actually happen? Yes, I think we can all agree that it did happen. And so one thing that tells us is that, okay, we at least know there is some truth in her first statement. The very detailed way in which she describes her interaction with Red Rock occurred in that same manner. So that was the first, my first goal was to find out if the interaction happened. And I believe that we, we proved that it did. The second half of that is to figure out, did it happen before or after the murders? See, and there's something in there that makes me question a lot of it too is the fact that Jen tells them that Eva's sleeping. Right. I, I don't understand why she would have done that if this is such a moment of panic that it's supposed to be, that she sees Eva running off to the office and she runs to the door. Why would she tell them that she's sleeping? Why would she not say Eva's not home or Eva ran to the office? You know what I mean? I, right. I understand her trying to get him to go away, but I don't understand why she would include that she is sleeping. Right. So this is getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but if I'm going to be honest, I don't think 
because you know, I've obviously done more research since then. You know, I've, I've, I've been working on this case since I recorded that one. I don't think she saw, I believe. I don't think she heard the voices and I don't think she's, I think she, I think she walked around the corner about the time things were happening, but maybe didn't see what was going on. Uh, it's still a lot of confusion there, but more to the point about with this episode, I think there were a few people that had that same thought. Like if she's so panicked and she's so worried about this woman and it's such a big situation, then why is she, why is she shooting red rock away instead of asking for help? And why is she not, why is she saying she's sleeping? It's the same where she actually is. But I think that that, that goes more to the point that she doesn't understand. It's possible. She doesn't know the gravity of the situation. If she just walks up and says something's happening, I guess I should back up when I said I don't think she saw Eva. I think she did, now that I'm thinking about it. She did know Eva left, if any of this is true. Otherwise, why would she have been knocking on the door to begin with? But if she just sees there's some kind of commotion, and then she goes over and she's just like, kind of like we were talking about last week, she wants to be involved, she wants to help, she's knocking on the door. You know, We know that there was a murder happening inside. But if she didn't know that, you know, it'd be like, hey, what's going on? What's happening? You know? trying to help and then it's something she just might not have thought it was as big of a deal as we know that it actually was but certainly see the point there and then there's some issues again we'll get into with um with june's scream the scream she heard and stuff as far as timing but for me it's going back to trying to clarify which i just muddied up again is did the interaction with red rock happen yes it did when did it happen before or after the murders because one school of thought is she was knocking on the door, as she said in her last confession, in order to get Catalina's attention or get her to the door so they could go in. And then the murder happened after that. That's kind of the other the other possible scenario. And so that's where the KD and Youngster statements come in and why they were so important. Because one thing that is consistent with all of their statements between Eva, Youngster, and KD, there's no consistencies. There's except one. The literally the only thing that's consistent with all of their versions of events and through all of their statements is that Katie and Youngster woke up to the sounds of the screams, or at least woke up when Eva's going downstairs because she heard the screams. Right? So if we believe that, if they didn't wake up until the basically what we know was when the murder was occurring, and we know that Youngster saw the interaction between Jennifer and Red Rock, which I believe that he did because he doesn't know Red Rock, doesn't say the name, but describes him perfectly. I know you mentioned earlier, you know, he had mentioned that he was stocky and you didn't think the actual build would be considered stocky. Yeah, that was with the other gentleman, the the Hausman. Hausen, yeah. Yeah, Hausen. Right. But as, as far as that, I mean, he describes, you know, with Hausen, bald, white muscle shirt, on a bike. I mean, it's, and then Red Rock, tall, skinny, ball cap. He even mentions the, um, he said there's something wrong with his lip, with his face. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's true. I mean, he describes these two guys. And so that was, and I think I didn't put enough emphasis on it. I didn't make it clear enough. But that's why it's important is because if Youngster saw Jennifer talking to Red Rock and Housen, and Youngster didn't wake up until the murder was already happening, and we know that the interaction with Jennifer and Youngs and Red Rock did happen. That means it didn't. It couldn't have happened until after the murder. It could it, it, more so. It could not have occurred before the murder because before the murder, Youngster and Katie aren't awake yet, at least according to all of their statements, and that's all still up in the air too, of course. 
But based on what we know from those statements, that's what I w- that was the conclusion I was coming to was it couldn't Jennifer could not have been knocking on Catalina's door and when Red Rock and Hausen came up to her before the murder because youngster saw it happen and he wasn't awake until after the murder had started. And see, this only brings up more questions, which I'm sure we'll answer at some point or hopefully answer at some point. But with all this commotion and all these people and witnesses, it's amazing to me that nobody saw anybody leave that patio. Right. It is amazing. But at the same time, uh, for any of you that have not been on the website and looked at the crime scene videos, or if you don't want to try to navigate that, just go to our YouTube channel, look at the crime scene video. Sorry, the photos are on the the website. You can see how easy that that, that could happen. If you know, if, if Jennifer or whoever is at the front door, it's not like the view's just a little obstructed. You've seen it mm-hmm. between her. You know, there's a there's a a wall that goes for I don't know eighteen feet, blocking from where she's standing to not only the patio but the entire alley where someone could escape back out to the road. From June Sage's door, the same wall is blocking. The apartment across the alley doesn't have windows on that side. From uh, Eva's apartment upstairs, if you were looking out the window at that moment, you could see somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, so if Katie or youngster were looking out the window, or right when somebody fled, yes, they could see them if they were looking that way, but not cl- it, it, for for literally a second. If someone jumped over that fence and took off down that alley. You could see them for a second. We're, we're to the point where if somebody was looking out the window towards the stairs and someone took off and took off the other way, you probably wouldn't even catch it out of your peripherals. It'd be that fast before they're out of sight again. Yeah, I still, I just, I understand the actual exiting and, and it makes a lot of sense the way you're explaining it, but I just feel like there's so much going on here that I feel like somebody knows something else. Here's a little clue is so as i told you earlier in the next two weeks we're gonna flip the case on its head there may not have been as much commotion as you think mm, okay all right guys let's get into these questions lynn says do you think catalina's killer was hiding in plain sight at the scene i don't i, I really don't think that I, I think that the killer hopped out and fled got out of the area it was too easy for them to egress you know as, as i was just talking about once you hop that patio fence there's a sidewalk that's an alleyway, and you go for, I don't know, 60, 80 feet, and you're at a road. I mean, you turn left or right, and you're gone just down the sidewalk, or you cross the street, and you're a whole other apartment complex. It was just too easy to get away, and from what we know from the crime scene, the killer, whoever did the actual killing, absolutely was covered in blood. There's From the blood spatter patterns and stuff that are inside that apartment and the method of killing, they would have been covered in blood. Alexis says, do we have an explanation for why Jennifer says she was wearing white during the incident, but multiple other statements say she was wearing black? Do we know if she says that she changed at some point that morning? I think that's a really good question from the listener because I caught that as well, that there's a lot of people that say she was wearing a black shirt. Okay, literally everyone. And so that was one of the big issues that one of the things that I have in the back of my mind that, that that's concerning to me is... In her statements, I I feel like, and I need to go back through and look at the clothing part of it because I wasn't focused on that. But I know she says she was wearing white shorts or she might have been wearing brown shorts. Seemed like she changed like two times that morning while the police were there. That she had changed from like shorts to jeans, from one shirt to another shirt. And and also there's another 
at actually another statement from Red Rock. It's either Red Rock or Housen that gets into a little bit more when they came back to the scene, which I didn't even think about this mentality. But they said they went back. It was I think it was Housen said that he went back to Red Rocks and changed shirts because he wanted to be on TV mm-hmm. because the all the cameras were out there. So I wonder if that's part of the reason why everybody's changing clothes. You know, if that's if that's a mindset that a lot of people had back then that they wanted to be in front of the cameras. Uh, but I don't know. But I, I I think she's wearing black. Literally, June Sade saw her wearing a black T-shirt. Red Rock says she was wearing a black T-shirt. Housen says she was wearing a black T-shirt. Uh, and Youngster says she got up and put on a black T-shirt. So the, I, I mean, she was wearing a black T-shirt. So we would have to assume that she's got clothing at Eva's to change into. So there's yeah. at some point she has to go back, which also I there's something else I caught that may be nothing. But in June's statement, she does say something about talking about Eva's apartment. And uh-huh. she says she believes that two black females live there, which sounds accurate. Except for. But I, how could you think that if she's only lived there for three days? Not even three days. Yeah, yeah, it was two days, I think, at this point, right? Yeah, it was the second night. And especially if there is a bunch of foot traffic in and out of that. I thought the same thing. And and, and you wonder how much of what we're seeing in these reports is influenced by police. I don't know. I'm not accusing them of that. But I thought the exact same thing. Like, she said there's constant foot traffic up and down, back and forth out of there. And Jennifer had been at that apartment for two nights. Her and her sister Kim ran away. They stayed another place one night or maybe two and then it was when Kim went home Jennifer went to Eva's Kim told me she was never at she was always with Jennifer while she was gone and she was never at Eva's so they were staying somewhere else first so like why she would think that she lived there I don't know unless it was she was thinking of someone else because she did say I'm almost sure it's one of the females that live upstairs and we know that Eva's mother used to live with her okay uh, a few months before that. So I don't know, but I thought that was strange too. But as far as the clothing, I don't know. It's something I, I certainly have not forgotten about. I've got a pin in it as far as why Jennifer says she was wearing one set of clothes, and but then seems like she was wearing something different. Certainly seems suspicious. You know, but again, there's definitely at least one cop involved in all this that I don't trust at all in Detective Allen. So you never know. I mean, these reports also were written up a long time later as well. So I want to go back and look at like Peekert's reports and Swainson's report from the scene and see what they say she was wearing at the scene. So I don't know. We'll, we'll definitely circle back to the clothing. Also, But I do want to point out too, Alan and Swainson did go to Eva's apartment that night, I think, and went through all the clothing at the apartment looking to see, and they said no, none of the clothing had any blood or any sign of any blood or anything on them. Alexis also asked, is it possible that June Sage heard Catalina scream and not the managers? So that's that's the big question, right? Is Going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, did the interaction with Red Rock, which is not really, the point isn't that it's Red Rock. He's just the anchor. Was the point when Jennifer was banging on Catalina's door, did that occur before or after the murder is what we're talking about. And so June says that she sees Jennifer banging on her door and then moves over to Catalina's door. And then when she saw Red Rock and Housen walk away, she went back in her apartment and a few minutes later heard a single, she heard something being thrown around the apartment and a single blood curdling scream. And so I hypothesized in the episode that that scream could have been the discovery of the body. You, know, you have there, Keith let in Pam and Lavana 
or Livonia, depending on who's spelling it in the reports. I'm not sure which it is. And I hypothesize, well, maybe it was, you know, he's moving the flower pot and stuff around, opens the door. They walk in and scream when they see the body, which, you know, I've seen the unredacted photos. I could see why somebody would scream when they would see the body. Few people mentioned on the Facebook group that, you know, well, it doesn't say anybody screamed in the reports, but yeah, that doesn't mean it didn't happen because they didn't document that I screamed when I saw the body. Did she ever mention about going back to the door when the scream happened? No. Because that's curious to me because if the scream happened, it almost would have happened outside because the body is at the front door. Right. So it wasn't like they had to let them in and they went in to find the body. Right. When they when he would have opened the door, they would have seen the body. I think the part that would cause the screaming was behind the door. You'd have to look at the crime scene photos to know what I'm talking about. But when you open the door, it would the door itself would be kind of covering her face. Okay. Which was, I mean, I guess the whole scene is bad. Yeah. But the, but I was just thinking that uh, the face is very beaten, bloody, swollen. That might, But I mean, just the fact that there's a dead body could cause a scream. Uh, but yeah, but so she, what she says is that when she sees the two, the two or three men walk away, then she goes back, and, uh, back in her apartment, sits down, and it says a few moments later, she heard something sound like it was being thrown around the apartment, and then a, a single blood-curdling scream. And then everything was quiet after that. And so, you know, the, the question is, did she witness Jennifer knocking on the door to, to, to help distract Catalina or get her to open the door or whatever so that the killers could go in? Or did she see her try, knocking on the door trying to help? Well, there's a couple things here. One, if the entire plan was to break into Catalina's apartment to steal her tight Honda Accord, why is she knocking on June's door? You know what I mean? If, if she knows for a fact that that's Catalina's car, Catalina lives in this apartment, she talked to Catalina, then why did she knock on June's door first? That's a good question. And a, a quick aside, I'll try to limit these, uh, but I just wanted to, m- to mention that we did, uh, on the Facebook group, a group of us did a bunch of looking at crime scene photos and videos and some checking some police reports, and we did determine that Catalina's car was a 1995. It was newer. Um, for some reason, I thought late model meant old, but it actually means latest model, newer. It was a 1995 Honda Accord, white, and it was parked right at where the alleyway meets the main drive. It was parked right there. It's in the, it's in the crime scene photos. So there's that. But as far as the, as the timing goes, the other thing is several people said, well, it couldn't have been after because nobody says that Pam and them screamed. I think, and they think, they're, they're, they're theorizing that what she heard was the murder. Here's my problem with that. If it was the murder, why is there only one single scream? Why does she not hear Eva outside yelling into Catalina? And all that commotion, Youngster and KDE coming down, she's yelling, the voice yelling back from inside. She doesn't hear any of that. Now, but you could say the same thing. Well, how did she not hear that before that? The fact that she only hears one scream makes it so that you you can't make an argument either way for this based on her statement. That's why I didn't focus on it because just as easily as you could say, well, it couldn't have been after because she wouldn't have heard X, Y, and Z, or you know she didn't hear X, Y, and Z. At the same time, you could say, well, it couldn't have been before because she didn't hear X, Y, and Z. She only heard one scream, and in no one story is there ever only one scream in any version of events. The only thing that I think 
helps this at all is what you said, Zach, is that that scream, if there was a scream when the body discovery occurred, it would have occurred outside or at least right at the door. Even if they took one step in the door, saw it and screamed, it's literally five feet away from her door outside. But that's why the focus was more on youngster statement than hers, because I don't think we can make a determination from hers. Because you, you can't, when you're laying those transparencies together, you can't line up the other elements that we have to work with because there was no version of events where there's only one scream. Richard says, did anybody else hear the male voice trying to sound like an older female voice? Uh, good question. I, and I assume what he means when he says, did anybody else, that that means, did anybody else besides Eva, Katie, and Youngster? I don't think we can even include Jennifer in that list because in later interviews she said that she didn't she wasn't there when that happened. Even though, you know, as we talked about earlier, she may have been. But no, other than them, nobody else heard it. But there's there's just there's just let me just say this. There's a lot more coming about this topic. Lynn says, since Keith found an open patio door and walked in, when do you think Jennifer touched the glass to leave her prints? Was her print found on the outside or inside of the door, or is that unimportant? Uh, it, was, it was. I believe it was on the outside. And that's you know we're going to get into forensics later. As far as when, I don't know. I think there's a few options. As far as when it could have been, it could have been as as she told Eva when Eva came back, according to Eva's first statement, that after the knocking on the door and Red Rock leaves, and she comes out, that maybe she did hop the fence. Like as I said before, I don't think she hopped the fence, went in, saw Catalina, and checked her pulse. But I think it's it's feasible that she might have hopped the fence like she was going to help, and you know either stopped at the patio, took a couple steps, or took a couple steps in and and bailed out and got out of there. But you know other options are when once the manager and the nurse and everybody's inside that she could have hopped the fence and just after they shoot her out, you know when she walked inside and they told her to get out. That maybe she could have hopped the fence and was looking in through the glass. Then uh, there's, you know, maybe she did follow Keith as she said, but didn't go into the apartment. I think is one is is one theory on that that I'm kind of leaning towards, to where you know he goes in and starts looking for looking for Catalina, and then the manager and them go to the front door as he's finding her and going to let her in, and that maybe she hops the fence, gets like she's going to follow him gets to the doorway and then is like, no, I better not, and comes back over. I believe she hopped the fence not because of the print. I believe she hopped the fence because her description of doing so is too detailed. I'm comparing that in the statement analysis to the way she describes the Red Rock conversation. You know, There's pieces where there's just not enough detail. It doesn't make enough sense. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't flow in the narrative. But she's got very, very sensory and visual memories that she's giving about hopping that fence, which lets me, which to me tells me she did at some point hop the fence. Maybe she hopped the fence because she went in to commit the, and she was part of the murder. Maybe she hopped the fence because she was checking on Catalina. Maybe because she started to follow Keith. Maybe because she was snooping after everybody was already inside. I don't know, but I believe she hopped the fence. And I think the print proves it. Those are just some of the options. I think are hypotheses that are out there as far as how and when. Kathy says, was Wanda, the girl Red Rock was supposed to help move, ever interviewed to back up his story? Not that I've seen. Um, I've been through the entire police file. I didn't see it in there. 
Uh, I've been through most of the DA's file. I've actually been through all of it, but more skimming than reading in detail. But I was looking for that the other day, and I have not found anywhere where Wanda was actually interviewed. Kim says, we've heard many times there's a lot of traffic going to Eva's. Why? Drugs? Gang hangout? Red Rock said he was looking to hook up, not his words. The impression that I get is that Eva was a sex worker. I think that I think that's why where where Red Rock is heading over there said he know he doesn't even know her name. He just knows the girl that lives in Unit Fifty Eight, and he's going over there to get some sex. You know, we she was a dancer that doesn't dancer doesn't equal sex worker, but but she's you know in that trade at some point. And there's there's other evidence too that I just haven't gotten into. But I I believe that Eva was a sex worker. Uh, was, I guess, I don't know if you call it part-time gig or whatever, but I think that has a lot to do with the traffic. Katie asks, how often did Katie and Youngster stay or hang out at Eva's apartment? That was the first time, as far as I know. You know, They, they didn't know Eva. They knew Jennifer, or, or Youngster knew Jennifer. Katie didn't even know Jennifer. Uh, Katie's just Youngster's brother, but yeah, it seems like that was just the very first time. And, and Eva says in her statements, too, that she doesn't know them. She didn't know who those guys were. Gemma says, can we see a side-by-side picture of Eva and Jen at the time of the murder? How easy would it have been for Mrs. Sage to confuse the two? Uh, I can put something up on social media. I mean, you can see Eva. The best picture I have of Eva is seeing her in the crime scene video. So that's where you'll see what she looks like. I think back in episode one or two in the case docs, there's already a picture of Jennifer from the police station while she's wearing red. They don't really look alike. I, I, I haven't seen any pictures. In the case file of Jennifer showing that there's two-toned hair, which has me wondering. I kind of gave up on that when you know both Housen and Red Rock both described her as hair in a ponytail with highlighted hair. So I'm assuming she did have highlighted hair. But the it, it's weird. The photos that I have from the police of her at the police station, her hair's back in a ponytail, but you can't see the ponytail. Like the pictures are like cut off. You can't even see her whole face. They're they're framed weird. So I can't see that she actually has her hair highlighted or or two toned like that. Uh, but as far as how you know them looking like, they don't, I don't think they look anything alike. And certainly the hair is is different. Eva's hair definitely looks very frazzled when she's sitting on the steps in the crime scene video. Maybe that means it was back in a ponytail and it came out. But again, I, I circle back to these are all things that I was looking into until I went through all those witness statements we covered this week and determined that that absolutely was Jennifer knocking on the door. Because June described the girl in the exact same way, doing the exact same thing as Red Rock and Housen also described her. And where she says she was. Denise says, have you actually created transparencies? I have a real old school, use it for projecting mural paintings, and I'm really tempted to try it. What do you think? No, I didn't. I, didn't, I don't have a transparency projector or I totally would have used one. Uh, most of the work that I did on this was uh, see, on the computer and then a lot on the whiteboard, just using different, making timelines with different colored markers. Stacy says, do you think you'll be able to speak to Jennifer so we can hear what she says is the actual truth? I know you stated she has a new attorney and can't comment. I really want to hear what her truth is compared to the fictitious or interrogation led statements. I don't know. I really hope so. At first, I thought this was a big disadvantage because... I as I've, I think I've mentioned I've talked to Jennifer multiple times. I just can't. She just can't talk about the case. Uh, her lawyer doesn't want her talking about the case until, as he said, until he has all the information and he 
has a better grip on the case because, you know, he, how can he advise her when he doesn't know the details of the case? But honestly, as I'm looking at it now, I think it's more of an advantage that I can't talk to Jennifer about this because none of we're, what, what's happening is we're not we're able to break down the statement analysis and figure out what happened based on the actual evidence, based on forensic evidence and on witness statements and do the work that we're doing, which I know I know is confusing when I'm trying to you know verbalize it in a podcast. But as far as the actual work process as an investigator, when I'm working on this, there's a lot to work with here without being jaded by something that she's saying, because we all know this. Jennifer could be completely innocent and be a liar. I'm not saying she is, but somebody could be a liar and, and could still lie for any number of reasons about what happened and still be innocent. But you know, we saw that with 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 Ed Eight, you know, with the uh, the whole driving his grandma's car in season two. So I think it's actually an advantage right now that we don't have Jennifer clouding this up, that we can figure out through the evidence what actually happened, and then we can talk to her, uh, hopefully at some point, and and see what she says about it. I'd like to know once we come up with a solid theory, which we don't have yet, but I I think we're getting there that we can figure out what actually did happen. And then ask Jennifer what happened and see how it lines up. Janaea says, did Janet ever confirm what clothing Jen wore that morning earlier when she went to make phone calls? She did. The police didn't talk to her until about a week later. Uh, and right before we came in to record, I went through and double checked that report uh, where she confirms the phone call. And it says right in there that that she doesn't recall what Jennifer was wearing that she didn't remember. She also says, do we know if the knife used on Catalina came from her own house or could have been brought to the scene. I imagine you'll discuss this when you get into the autopsy. Yeah, you're exactly right. We'll be able to maybe determine that when we get into the autopsy. As of now, and, I, and honestly, I think even with the autopsy, it's still theory. The police are definitely leading us to believe that. You know, the knife drawer's open. They say there's a drawer full of knives. If you look at the crime scene photos on the website, you'll see it's not a drawer full of knives. It's a drawer full of silverware. Uh, there is one big butcher knife in the drawer, still in the drawer. You know, I don't know if there was another one in there. I believe that Juan Mendiola, when he was her her nephew, when he was interviewed, I believe that he may have told them that he thinks there's a knife missing from a set. So, but but that that's all we know. We know that the murder weapon wasn't left on the scene. We don't know for sure if it came from the scene. All right, our last question comes from Michelle. I know that Jennifer can't be questioned as to what happened, but has anyone thought to approach her sister? Yeah, I mean we. In episode one, I think, yeah, in episode one, we heard from Jennifer's sister, Kim, some short clips from her. Uh, I've, I've spoken with Kim. I've been down in Houston and there's, there's two sisters, by the way, there's Kim and Karen. Uh, but Karen was older and wasn't staying in the house when this happened. Kim and Jennifer are closer to the same age. And she's the one, you know, that's the two that ran away together. I mean, I just, I just talked to Kim yesterday. I talked to the whole family yesterday, actually, but you will in, Two weeks, as I mentioned before, the week that I'm going to be gone, you're going to hear a lot from all the family because uh, while, while I'm on vacation, I'm going to use that as the opportunity to take a week and let you get to know Jennifer and the family a little bit by by letting you hear some of those interviews and getting a little better idea of the backstory, Jennifer's background, where the family came from. Um, and you'll hear a lot from uh, both Kim and their and Jennifer's other sister, Karen, in that episode. And uh, Mike, you said that was the last question? That's it, man. Okay, well, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you haven't done so already, please check out True Crime Binge. In this week's episode, I had Maggie Freeling on, and I want to tell—I'll tell both of you guys before we really go. If you haven't listened to Suave yet, 
Uh, it's Maggie's new podcast, which is produced by uh, her and Julieta Martinelli, who also joined Maggie on True Crime Binge. That podcast is awesome, and it has a crazy twist. I was listening to it for the first three or four episodes because it was it was just interesting and very different and unique from any other true crime podcast I listened to. And then episode five, huge twist. Now I'm hooked. I'm dying for next week's episode to come. Anyway, I had Maggie and Julieta on this week's episode of True Crime Binge talking all about it. So please check that out and make sure you check out Sunday's episode as we dig even further into Jennifer's statement analysis. And I promise you I'm going to do my absolute best to not confuse you anymore this week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Turn my camera towards the tree a little. I, I do that, and then you yell at me. Mm, there.
It's like whenever we run out of content, anything to talk about. Just Bob move did, the camera. Yeah, Bob's like, can you move my camera? Move yeah. Look what you've done to me. I'm way over there now. <laughs>